Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. This is a CBS News special report. Dan Rather reporting for CBS News from New York. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was shot to death by an assassin late today as he stood on a balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. King had planned to lead another civil rights march in Memphis next Monday. Good morning, Hope Ames. My name is Danny Householder. Uh, I'm a pastor here, and I'm really glad that we get to worship together. It was 94 years ago today in Atlanta that there was a little boy, little boy born, and his name was Michael. This is Michael. Michael's father was Michael Sr., and Michael Sr. was a pastor. And in the late 19, or excuse me, in the mid-1930s, Michael Sr. traveled to Germany with some other pastors to learn and get together with uh, pastors worldwide for a worldwide conference. As he was there, he was deeply moved and inspired by the work of a very old German monk, and it was Martin Luther. As he learned about this monk, and he learned about the Reformation that he brought into the church, that was for the sake of liberating people from spiritual abuse, he was so moved. He was so moved, in fact, that Michael Sr. came back to the United States and he legally changed his name to honor Martin Luther. So now Michael Sr. became Martin Luther King Sr. So when he came home, he also had to rename his kid to Martin Luther King Jr. And that little boy grew up into who we celebrate on a weekend like this, and especially tomorrow. I'll be using some things from Martin Luther King Jr. to help uh, illustrate this sermon today. And, and I, I invite you to join that service tomorrow at Hope Elam as we remember the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And I want you to know that when we're remembering the, Mar the life of Martin Luther King Jr., we can remember his roots. Know that he came from a place that valued liberation of God's people, that valued justice, I mean, who was this man? What was it that drove him to give that speech the night before he was assassinated? I think it was more than a speech. I think it was a prophetic sermon. You heard it in the clip. He said this, I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that, as, that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. His last public words were, mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. 
How powerful is that? How beautifully is that? And yet how tragic is that? When we think about Martin Luther King Jr. today, we think about this fearless, courageous, well-spoken man who has inspired generations of people now. And we know that his work isn't done, and so we continue to do our best moving forward with it, fighting against injustice. But what was it that drove him? You might be surprised to learn that throughout Martin Luther King Jr.'s life, he was not always this bold and courageous man. In fact, he was called to lead a bus boycott a day after a woman named Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus to a white man. And when his friends approached him and said, you've got to lead this boycott, Martin Luther, you're the one. It should be you. Dr. King, it, sh it should be you. You're brilliant. You're well thought. You think things through very clearly. You've got this great vision for justice. It should be you. And he answered with three words. I don't know. And when his friends just detail that conversation, they talk about how he answered it with this bashfulness. He answered it with this confusion. He answered it with this insecurity. Martin Luther King later, later would write about that experience, and he talked about how he dealt with this obsessive fear and feeling of inadequacy. This is Martin Luther King Jr., the man who's inspired generations. The man who boldly stood in the face of injustice, risked his life, and then gave his life for this. What was it that drove him? What was it that made him believe we will see the promised land? What made, it, what made him believe that despite whatever it is that I might go through, and he knew he would go through bad things, I believe God can still change this world. There was a Hollywood filmmaker who was interviewing Martin Luther King Jr. one time, and he said, how do you suppose the civil rights movement will end? And he said, It'll, it will end with me dead. He had this understanding. He was having conversations with his friends. Again, his friends talked about these conversations that they had with him, and he said, I'm not trying to be so morbid about this, but I know what's going to happen. I'm not going to survive this. And yet he stood in the face of it. He didn't punch back with fists, but instead he responded with a bigger heart than their violence. A lot of times people will compare Martin Luther King Jr. to other historical figures throughout history. Sometimes, uh, especially when Martin Luther King Jr. was alive, people would try to push on him, well, he's the Gandhi of the United States, right? And I think that Martin Luther King Jr. appreciated that. In fact, he spoke very highly of Gandhi. But do you know what he said? He said this, this business of passive resistance and nonviolence is the gospel of Jesus. I only look like Gandhi because of Jesus. This is what drove him. This is what gave him security when he felt insecure. He said, if we're wrong, God Almighty is wrong. If we are wrong, Jesus of Nazareth was merely a utopian dreamer and he never came down to earth. We are determined to work and fight until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. And when he says that, he's quoting Amos, Amos chapter 5. He's got the word of God in him. He's breathing it out and he's struggling. I mean, he's boldly proclaiming the word of God that, 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 that proclaims justice for all people. And then in the background, you know he's still dealing with these pains, this fear and this insecurity. And how did he balance that? You think about the different things that he had to deal with in his life. He's arrested just absolutely for ridiculous reasons. He was attacked during speeches. His house was bombed while his family was home. Miraculously, they survived. How is it that he's dealing with that? One time he recounted one of his prayers and he's saying to God, listen, God, I know that you've called me to something big, but I'm losing courage and I don't know if I can do this anymore. 
And as he spoke about that, he said, Jesus responded to me. Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. If you want to know what drove Martin Luther King Jr., it's important that you know the Jesus that he knew. If we want to continue the work of Martin Luther King Jr., it's important that we know the Jesus that he knew. The one who would stand with him. The one who would face injustice, die in injustice, and rise from the dead for righteousness that would flow like a stream for all people. Martin Luther King Jr. refused to give up because he had this bold faith. And it is the same faith that you can have today. He knew a Jesus that you can know. Martin Luther King Jr. was a human being. And sometimes we put him on this pedestal as if there's something so different and incap there's something so different about him and I'm incapable of that. You are capable of courage. You are capable of faith because you get the same access to this Jesus. This Jesus who talked about a promised land. This Jesus who talked about the kingdom of God. This Jesus who talked about a day when we would all be together and there wouldn't be a sniff of racism. There wouldn't be a sniff of oppression. There wouldn't be injustice. But instead, God's justice would rain down on all people. In Revelation chapter 7, it gives us a vision of what heaven is going to be like. This promised land that one day all of us are going to be in. It says, I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and every tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne before the Lamb. Let me say it again. For people who follow Jesus, there better not be a sniff of racism or prejudice. Sometimes people always talk about, well, what's heaven going to be like? I can't wait to get there. Well, am I going to get in? Or who's going to be out of heaven? I think that the people who are out of heaven are the people who don't want it. I mean, Jesus makes this accessible to us. He shows up, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There once was no way and here I am. I'm providing it for you. But I think a real important question that we have to ask ourselves is, if you think that racism and judgment and hating people is okay, what makes you think you're going to like heaven? I mean, if you're struggling with people, if you hold grudges and if you're bitter with everybody else, what makes you think that you're going to enjoy the eternal home where we're all together for all time and there's nothing separating us? Sometimes I think for the people who fall into racism and prejudice, and I know at a certain point that becomes all of us, God's just going to play this great and amazing, well-intended and good joke on all of us and say, meet your roommate. They're totally different than you. For me, it'll be a Packers fan. <laughs> So how do we get there? Like how, how do we see it? Because I don't think it takes much convincing to say that, okay, well, in this world, there's still injustice. And when Martin Luther King Jr. said, one day we're going to see the promised land together, we're like, I, I, don't, I, I see glimpses of it, but I don't, I don't know if I see it yet. Jesus talked about how the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is here. Because when Jesus is showing up in the world, he's God. And as God, he can't go anywhere that he doesn't reign over. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's in charge, which means everywhere he goes, it's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of heaven. So how do we live like that? How does that transformation happen for us individually and as a people, as a whole world? How does heaven happen? 
We're halfway through our first month of this uh, year-long series called The Whole Holy Bible in a Year. I'm so excited about how many of you are like absolutely fascinated with God's Word and intrigued with it and, and diving into it. I, I'm so very happy about that. And so we're going through the, the first gospel account called Matthew to start the year. And we're calling it Matthew Connects the Dots. That's the name of this sermon series. One more time, I said it last week and I'll say it again this week. Matthew was a Jewish man who was writing to a primarily Jewish audience who did not believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah for the Jewish people. So he's connecting all of these different dots. He's showing that Jesus is the continuation of the Old Testament and how he is the redemption for God and his people Israel. He's the answer. He's the one that they've been looking for. And so when Jesus shows up and he's telling people the kingdom of heaven is near, the kingdom of heaven is here, Matthew is showing us how the way that Jesus teaches us about heaven is actually the exact same way that God had been describing a promised land, a promised existence for his people in the Old Testament. Here's how Jesus spoke about heaven. This is in Matthew chapter 13, which is the same chapter where we had our Bible reading for today. This is at the beginning, and this story introduces what Jesus was talking about at the end of the chapter, which is where we had our Bible reading for today. A large crowd soon gathered around Jesus. Then he sat there and he taught as the people stood on the shore. Just one quick side note, I think that our church should be more biblical um, and like the, the, the pastor should sit and the congregation should stand. Can we try it? I'm kidding, we won't do that. <laughs> My legs get tired up here. He told many stories in the form of parables. Now, oftentimes, Jesus would tell parables, these one-point stories to prove one point, to explain things that we wouldn't be able to understand otherwise. And oftentimes, he uses these stories to explain heaven, because we can't quite comprehend it. It's too great. And so Jesus is simultaneously honoring and humbling us by telling these stories when he says, the kingdom of heaven is like. And he goes through this list of stories what he's saying is, it's for you, you can know it, that's how much I honor and value you, and yet you're living in a broken world and a broken existence, and you're contributing to that, and so I know that you don't quite understand it, so I'm going to have to bring it down into story form. And here are three of the introductions to the stories that he tells. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed, a mustard seed planted in a field, the yeast a woman used in making bread. I find it interesting that Jesus is oftentimes describing heaven like a farm. So I don't know, what's heaven like? Iowa? <laughs> I think you live in Iowa because God wants you in heaven. Anyway, <laughs> I, I do know that God wants you in heaven. I don't know if that's why you live in Iowa. And here's how Jesus would introduce one of his stories. This is again, Matthew chapter 13. He says, listen, I've got a story to tell you. A farmer went out to plant some seeds and he talks about how the seed would interact with different forms of ground and land and soil. And by the end, he talks about for the seed that lands on fertile soil, they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. The kingdom of heaven is producing something new and something wonderful and something beautiful. And it's greater than anything we've ever experienced. And it keeps on multiplying. It keeps on growing. It's going to be the most beautiful thing we've ever seen. And we're going to be there together with people who are different than us, people who speak differently than us, people who come from a different place, people who might see this world in a very, very different way than you. Because this kingdom of heaven is multiplying and Jesus has come to invite and to welcome. Now, let's take a look a little bit closer at the story. This is in Matthew chapter 13, verse 35 now. It says, Jesus always used stories and illustrations. 
It fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet. Remember, Matthew is connecting the dots. I don't think that Jesus just started showing up and telling stories because he had a knack for it. He started showing up and telling stories because this is what God had always intended. And because it's what God had always intended, this is what Jesus had always intended. He's actually fulfilling prophecies. He's fulfilling this prophecy from Psalm chapter 78. Matthew's connecting the dots. See, audience, don't you see? This is the, this is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. That Messiah will come and speak to you in parables, explain the things that are hidden since the creation of the world. There are things that you don't understand. There are things that you don't see. But Jesus showing up in this world as God over everything, reigning over everything with all of his power and all of his authority is showing us what heaven is really like. And I promise you, no matter how broken and lost you think this world is, Jesus isn't giving up on it. He's not going anywhere. He promises us, we're going to see this promised land together, and I'm going to die before that happens, but I'm coming back. And you'll be there with me. Jesus would conclude his stories by something with something like this on the next slide. He would tell them, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. So how does the kingdom of heaven show up? How do we receive it into our lives? Well, Jesus would talk about it and he would say, listen to it, hear it. Now, we might bypass that and think that it's nothing, but it's actually very countercultural. I'll summarize it by this and I'll explain it really quick. The kingdoms of earth come by being heard, but the kingdom of God comes by hearing. The most powerful people in the history of the world, especially those who abuse their power, were very, very good at getting a hearing. People had to listen to them. About 330 to 350 years before Jesus would have walked the earth, there was Alexander the Great. And when Alexander the Great showed up into a town, you would know his kingdom was there. Because there were two kinds of people in Alexander the Great's kingdom, people who listened to him and people who were dead. It was by force, it was by coercion, you were going to listen to him. And now here's Jesus saying, but the kingdom of God comes by listening. The people who are so powerful with earthly power in this world are great at getting a hearing, but those who are receiving the kingdom of heaven are great at giving a hearing. They listen. When Jesus is describing the story that he wants us to hear, it's kind of shocking because it's so humble. The kingdom of heaven is received by hearing it? What about the kingdom of heaven is received by winning a war? Come on! The people that Jesus was speaking to, they were, they were being oppressed by the Roman government with ridiculous taxes. The only way that they were going to get political power, social power, earthly power, would have been by defeating Rome through violent war. And many of the people who are awaiting a Messiah after reading the Old Testament scriptures that Matthew keeps on connecting the dots to, they are waiting for someone to come and win a war for them. And Jesus says, that's not the one who's come. Instead, he says, I just want you to listen. And it's so interesting how his stories perfectly line up with that, right? When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he describes a seed. He describes a farmer. And in some ways, just like recklessly scattering this seed all over any soil, like, hey, who's going to get it? And maybe that bothers you as a Christian sometimes. Shouldn't Jesus be more careful with who he gives this to? This is how the kingdom of heaven is received. Listen, hear. Notice he didn't say that the kingdom of heaven shows up like a boulder. 
You know the difference between a boulder and a seed? So I've got some soil up here, right? And imagine if the kingdom of heaven comes in like a boulder. This is a pathetic excuse for a boulder, but you try carrying one in as I tried. The ground's frozen. You can't get them out. I found that out this morning. If the kingdom of heaven comes in like a boulder, it will most certainly make an impact. But it literally breaks the ground. It is forceful. I mean, it wrecks it. It destroys it. It, it changes it. But there's no life. It's just changed its shape. It's just superficial. It's just on the surface. Oh, well, what if I get a bigger rock? Same thing. And then... Here comes a seed, and a seed is gentle and it's organic, and when a seed is growing, you can't even see it, and yet slowly and surely, it's happening, and as it is planted in fertile soil, you may not even notice it, but it's not changing the soil on a superficial level, it is changing it deeply. From the inside out, it's actually transforming the nature of the ground. One is sudden. Another is slow. One is forceful. One is gradual. One could be picked up and moved somewhere else. One is going to change the ground for years to come. And in Jesus' case, for eternity to come. This is who he is. This is who's come. Martin Luther King tapped into this Jesus. And when he was faced with forcefulness, and when he was faced with abuse, when he was faced with the boulders of the world, how did he respond? He wrote this, As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways that I could respond to my situation, either to react with bitterness or seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. If you want to be a boulder, you'll certainly make an impact. But a question that we have to ask ourselves as Christians is, are you more concerned with leaving your mark or being a part of the transformative work of Jesus Christ in this world? In one that produces a kingdom that will multiply and, and reap a harvest that lasts forever. This is the option that we have. And Matthew is telling his audience, this is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. He's telling his audience, and he's also reminding someone in his stories. Last week, we learned about John the Baptist. John is the one who baptized Jesus. He was a relative of Jesus. Oftentimes, we refer to him as a cousin of Jesus. John found himself in a horrible situation, and he needed somebody to come in and change his story and make a major impact on his surroundings. Otherwise, he would die very soon. John was imprisoned, and he was living uh, in the prison of Herod. Of King Herod, and he knew that his life was coming to an end. Out of control, off script. John walked so closely with the, with the Lord. When Jesus would describe John later, Jesus would say, there's never been a greater human being that's ever lived than John the Baptist. What a resume. And yet John the Baptist, when he is in the, deep, the deepest pits of his life, he's also dealing with doubt. And I think that's important for us to know. If you're a Christian and you're dealing with doubt, it doesn't mean that you're spiritually flawed. It means that you're a human being. 
God's not afraid of your questions and he wasn't afraid of the questions that John asked a long time ago. It says this in Matthew chapter 11. John sent his followers to go ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? He's asking the same question that Matthew's audience had been asking. Who's the Messiah that we're expecting? Because we're living in oppression. We're living without liberation. We're, every single day we're faced with injustice. How are we going to be free from this? Who's the Messiah who's going to come and help us? And John's asking the same question to Jesus. I know I'm the one who baptized you. I know we're family members. I know I've been pointing people your way, but life got off script. Are you the one or should I be expecting someone else? Because I've been walking with you. I've been following you. I've been advancing your kingdom. I've been preaching for you. I've been living a good life. Why is my life ending? Why am I in prison? Why have things gone off script? Why? What do you do when life gets off script? What do you do when it feels like hope is lost? I think for a lot of us, we start looking somewhere else. We start looking for our hope in something that will bring quick and immediate results, like a boulder landing in soil. But there's no actual transformative work in that. Jesus responds to John, and I love the way that he responds to him. He satisfies him intellectually, but then he's about to go deeper emotionally and spiritually. First, he says back to John, go back to John and tell him what you've heard and seen. Remember what you've heard, what you've received. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Is Jesus just kind of throwing his resume back to John? Like, hey, John, come on, I'm doing really good stuff. Be patient. I know you're in jail and stuff, but come on. What's... What's he doing? Well, remember, Matthew connects the dots. In just that little passage there, Jesus has fulfilled. He's pointing back to all these different prophecies. Some of the prophecies, Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah chapter 42. And Matthew is telling his Jewish audience, don't you remember those scriptures? And I know that when you heard about this Messiah who would come, you love to focus on his victory. You love to focus on his strength. And you love to focus on the things that he would share with you. But the thing that you missed was his humbleness. The thing that you missed was his gentleness. The thing that you missed was his love. The thing that you missed was his persistence. The thing that you missed was his deep, organic, gradual, but persistent growth. You missed that part, but here he is. Now, the interesting thing about these prophecies that Jesus is pointing back to in Isaiah chapter 35, 61, and 42, those are prophecies that talk about a time that would come after God had won his final victory. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the victory may not be completely realized, but the victory is won. And that's true for you too. Things in your life may have gone off script. Things in your life may feel out of control. You may not know what tomorrow brings, but Jesus is still Lord over it all. He's still reigning. He's still victorious. His very presence on this earth is heaven invading earth. And nothing can stop his organic, persistent growth that is transforming the soil that we're standing on. What do you do when life goes off script? When life trips you up? Just this week, my wife learned that one of her friends from college, age 28, died tragically in a car accident. 
He was on his way home from work to go see his wife and their 11-month-old daughter. Are you, are you kidding me? This world is broken. It's not fair. Facing all sorts of injustice, whether that's spiritual injustice, emotional injustice, racial injustice, socioeconomic injustice. Jesus, where are your victories? Are you the one? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And if you're not, just tell me because I need to stop wasting my time and move on to someone or something else. Please tell me who you are. See, Jesus could point back and say, don't you see my power through miracles? And he could satisfy you at an intellectual level. But I think he also wants to reach you on a personal level. And so he doesn't just put out his resume on paper to John. It's like he gives him this beautiful personal message at the very end of this. He says, oh, one more thing to tell John in Matthew chapter 11. God blesses those who don't fall away because of me. The word for do not fall away, for fall away there, it's scandalizo. It's where we get our word for scandalous. God blesses those who who don't trip up over me. Yes, I'm a rock. (laughs) I'm not going anywhere. But the interesting thing about the rock of Jesus is he hasn't come down to smash the ground and live above everybody else. He's, He's a rock who comes down to the foundations of the universe and provides some solid ground. He's gone way, way low. And that can be really difficult and painful for us, can't it? Because I want my Jesus to clearly show in his power over everybody that I don't like or people who are hurting me. I think this is what John felt. And Jesus is saying, that's not the way that I reign over this world. That's not the way that I save this world. I go down to the depths and I'm not going anywhere. Don't trip up over me just because I'm not necessarily the one that you expected. I am the one that you need. Matthew continues to connect the dots. See, when people would talk about Jesus being this rock in this boulder, they thought about a rock in a boulder who would come and smash the ground and make his impact and leave a mark. And they would refer to passages like this in Isaiah chapter 8. He'll be a stone that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. We're talking about, you know, the enemies and people that we don't like. And yet, if we take the full breadth of that prophecy that Matthew's pointing back to, God is speaking through Isaiah to his people saying, no, you. Don't you stumble over this hurdle, this little problem Messiah that isn't exactly who you expected and sometimes even who you want, but the one that you need. See, in Isaiah chapter 8, it says, don't call everything a conspiracy. Don't be so cynical. When you lose, you lose. That's okay. Because you haven't lost. A lot of people, they do that. Don't live in dread of what frightens them. So many of us are following leaders who tell people, you have to have an enemy. I've said this before, and I think that it's important to say it again. If the person in this world, or if the thing that you are following needs an enemy to lead you, they're a bad leader. If they're just pointing, people say, fear them, I'm your only hope, I'll stand between you and them. God's inviting you to live a life that's more free than that. 
God invites you to look your enemies in the face and say, take your best shot at me. Jesus died. He's okay. One day I might die. Unless Jesus comes back real quick. And I'll be okay. Because I'll be with him. Make the Lord of heaven, heaven's armies holy in your life. He will be a stone that makes people stumble. A rock that makes them fall. What's he saying? When Matthew's connecting the dots here, when Jesus is pointing back to this prophecy, what is he saying? He's saying the offensiveness of me, of me is not that I come into your life and I smack you like a boulder. The offensiveness of me is that I'm not the one you expected. I think about Palm Sunday, and I wonder what it must have been like to be in the crowd. And there's all these great, amazing cheers. Hosanna, here he comes, hallelujah! And here comes a little Jewish man on a miniature horse. He's on a donkey, and it's fulfilling more prophecies, but I think you get what I'm saying. In their eyes, he's just a man. But he's the ruler of the kingdom of God, don't you know? He has power. And he's not here just to leave a physical mark. He's here to transform it from the inside out. I think it's important for us to know, when is it that we're living under the rule of the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of God? This is not an exhaustive list, but just really quickly. Kingdoms of earth, they're like the boulders. They come to break. They come to coerce. They threaten you and say, follow me or else. Superficial effects, they leave their mark on the surface and they silence everyone else so they will be heard. But the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is like a seed. It comes to heal the land. It comes to transform the land. It's organic and it's gradual. Notice that any time in the Bible when it talks about spiritual growth, it compares it to a plant. It's something that if you just stare at it with the naked eye, you won't even know that it's happening. And maybe you're like, I don't know if God's growing in me. I don't know if he's producing anything in my life. I don't know if I'm getting any better, whatever better might mean. And then you start to think about, how would have I responded to this situation two years ago? Oh man, I'd have been a wreck. And I'm still kind of a wreck now, but I would have been more of a wreck. Organic, gradual, persistent growth. It's like a weed that grows through a stone. How did that happen? It just wouldn't stop. It's inside out transformation and the kingdom of God listens. In the book of Exodus, when God calls Moses and they are having this conversation at the burning bush, God says to Moses about his people who are living in slavery in Egypt, he says, I've seen their affliction and I have heard their cries. The kingdom of heaven is one where people listen. In James chapter one, it tells us to be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. So what distracts us from that? Like what, what keeps us from that? These are some of the distractions from a heaven, earthly distractions from a heavenly kingdom. The first is that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 13, is he talks about hard hearts. And the way that he describes that, as you heard about in our Bible reading today, is he says, listen to the explanation about, of the parable about the farmer planting seeds. That seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom of God 
and don't understand it. Then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts. It's these hard hearts. It's seed that is on a rock. This is, the, this is for the person who's willing to go places intellectually with Jesus, but they refuse to feel anything. They refuse to let it into their heart. You know about Jesus, but you're not in relationship with Jesus. You know about the things that he's done, but you haven't experienced him doing those things for you. Now, this isn't some sort of shame thing and say, you need to welcome Jesus in your life right now. You need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Jesus, Lord and Savior over all the earth has accepted you. And you might push that off and say, no, I'm going to close off my heart. I had a friend, um, and it was interesting. He, He talked about the worst tattoo he ever got. And he showed me too. He tattooed a brain over his heart. Don't think with your feelings. I get it. There are times in this world when we have to be very logical. But what about when it comes to loving the person next to you? Logically, it makes no sense to love people you don't know. They get in your way. They slow you down. Have a soft heart. Go deeper than the intellect. This Jesus satisfies more than your mind. It'll satisfy your soul. This is deeper than intellectual. It's personal. The second one is it's it's shallow hearts. These are seeds that are on the surface. He says the seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. This is seeds on the surface. This is when we refuse to actually let them go deeper, not necessarily intellectual to heart, but actually go deep into our life. When we think, if I follow Jesus, everything's going to go right. And this is the thing that John was struggling with when he was in prison. Why aren't things going right in my life? And we ask God, I followed you. I gave my life to you. Why are things not going the right way? And I think that it's interesting. I wonder if Jesus might respond to us and say, yes, you may give your life to me, but I ultimately gave my life for you. I gave my life for you. I gave it up. It went deep. I am a seed that went down into the depths of the earth's soil, and I'm transforming it from the inside out. Sometimes, as Christians, we start to crumble in our faith simply because things aren't going the way that we want it to go. And I know that that's really hard. And it's not a pressure or shame thing to say, you need to go deeper, you need to go, you need to go faster and harder on this faith thing. What it's saying is, it's an invitation to have a faith that can't be taken away from you. Because you have a Jesus who can't be taken away from you. The third thing that distracts us from a heavenly kingdom is a divided heart. And this is the seed in thorns. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, so no fruit is produced. This is when we want Jesus to be our blesser and not our savior. This is when we're trying to get Jesus to fit into our lives instead of entering into his life. Jesus would also say, you can't serve two masters. You only get one who's your ultimate master. Let it be him. So what's the other option? Jesus concluded the explanation of this parable by saying this. The seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produces a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as had been planted. It also says this in Matthew chapter 11 on the next slide. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, 
He sold everything he owned and bought it. I mean, when you're comparing the different kind of soils that you can plant and harvest from, of course, you go for the deep and fertile soil. And Jesus is pushing this point a little bit more. He's like, it's as if someone had found the most incredible pearl. Of course, they would sell everything else that they own because this one thing absolutely outvalues everything else that they have combined. And when we hear that story, we think, oh, yes, okay, so I ought to give up absolutely everything that I have and follow Jesus. And yeah, it's true. Jesus should come first in your life before anything else because Jesus and his kingdom, it's more valuable than anything. It's more precious than any pearl that we've ever obtained before. Of course, logically, it would make sense to sell everything. And I think that there's something to be said about that. But I wonder if in this parable, Jesus is talking about more than just us. Because it says he sold everything he owned and bought it. What was Jesus's pearl? I mean, he's the merchant over the entire universe. He can see the value of absolutely everything. He sees the value of all the soil. He sees the value of every kingdom. He sees the value of every seat. He sees the value of every job. He sees the value of everything in this world. And yet he decided that the most valuable thing in the world to him was you. He sold everything he had. He's purchased us with his blood. He's welcomed us into his family. He wants you. He wants you. He's the merchant who sees everything and he sees you and he decided that you're better. Last week I told you about how when I was in like my early high school years, I was like, I had just this horrible, terrible fear of death. I want to tell you, it's still a struggle that I have. There are nights when I, wait, when I lie awake and I'm like, I'm, I'm, oh my gosh, I'm going to die someday. Like it just hits me. I'm like, wow, crazy. And you know what I've learned I kind of have to do with that? I just have to say, yeah. So what? Come on, enemy. Bring it. Sometimes I used to think that the only thing that was going to heal my fear of that was if I'd see a picture of myself when I was 96 years old. If I just saw a picture of myself when I'm 96, then I'll be fine. Someday I'll be 96 and I still probably won't be ready for it if I get there. And yet Jesus, when he's going to his death, he has all these different options and all these different choices. And it says that he's in the garden praying to his father. If there's another way, let's check it out. Because this is really going to hurt. And yet he decided that death was a better option than eternity without you. Jesus would have rather died than spend eternity without you. And that's exactly what he did. He sold everything he owned and he bought you. And so when we're looking at the choices of our life and even some of the things that are left out of our hands, the things that we can't control, like one day a death, or maybe it's just when things go off script, we can say to those things, Jesus wasn't afraid of you and he's with me. Because where Jesus walks, he is ruler. Where Jesus walks, heaven has invaded. One more time, to, back to Martin Luther King Jr. This is the faith that he had. He said, there are some who still find the cross a stumbling block. People who are tripping over it because Jesus isn't this Messiah that we wanted him to be. He's not a valiant, violent warrior. He's a humble servant. And others consider it foolishness 
But I am more convinced than ever that it is the power of God unto salvation. When Jesus shows up into this world, he is not a boulder that's come to smash the ground. He is a seed that has come to be planted. And therefore, when they killed him and when they buried him in a grave, he was a seed that came out from the ground again and he lives forever. And he's inviting to share that with you. Heaven came to us. We couldn't get there on our own. So he has brought it to us. When you look around at the people around you, they might be different than you. You might not like them very much, but one command is clear. You love them. You listen to them because you live in the kingdom of God. Listen. Sometimes we're so concerned about being heard and Jesus says, I want you to hear. And above all, hear the words from your savior. I love you. I'm always with you. I'm never letting you go. Amen. Let's stand on up. Let's get a glimpse of heaven and praise our savior.